Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. The world's longest running motorsport magazine show, Midweek Motorsport. News, features, special guests and analysis from the experts. Formula One, sports car and endurance racing, rallying, touring cars. Cars and bikes. If it has wheels and an engine and they keep score, it's on Midweek Motorsport. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Midweek Motorsport just after eight in the UK. This is Series 10. Episode number 39. And uh, no, Tim tonight, he once again is on uh, assignment. So I get to say good evening to our Formula One correspondent, Nick Damon. Good evening, John. Good evening, everybody. Uh, and on the part programme tonight, we have what? All the usual features. Oh, you, you were a bit loud there. <laughs> well, please get to play it. I remember it. Yes, indeed. I didn't build, uh, didn't build your part up as JP yeah. did last week. You know, but I think it's, it's good to see he's finally embraced the concept of the Wii Motorsport. Get on the mic and don't let anyone else near it. Uh, take a breath and lose a turn, as <laughs> I think uh, it is uh, properly. Yeah, uh, I've got that this weekend, haven't I? Yeah, you really have, yes. Uh, from last weekend, it carries over. Uh, thank you for all your apologies for absence. No time to get into those. Although there were some very good ones. Uh, we will start with uh, a little bit of uh, Formula One news after this jingle. Latest motorsport news from around the world. Midweek motorsport. And the big Formula One news of the week is all about engines again, but this time it's about who's got them. Yes, it's about engines. The, the actual positive, actual, real, not speculative, actual news, John. Mm. Genuine, actual announcement. I know, real. I know. Scary, isn't it? Is that the ultimate minnows have got the best engine of all for next year? In that Manor have been have signed up with Mercedes to pick up the 2016 top spec, the spec they wouldn't give to Red Bull, they'll give to Manor. Well, they'll give it to this. Well, they're going to sell it to Manor, but obviously Manor are going to get a big discount by running Pascal Verline. That's not official, but that's going to happen. Because Pascal is a Mercedes... He's Div- their F1 test driver, yeah. Yeah, development oh, uh, Sorry, development driver, and obviously also runs in DTM, but obviously he's the guy they're grooming for when either Lewis or Nico leaves the team and I'm sure he'll be much cheaper along with Stoffel van Dorn presumably no he's he's, he's um, McLaren oh yes of course sorry I've got that see McLaren Mercedes it still goes so well uh, for me yes uh, so Mercedes-Benz are happy to give engines to people at the back of the grid but not to sell them to Red Bull this is actually quite a smart move by Mercedes-Benz isn't it because um, at least then nobody can point the finger and say you're not letting your engines go. Well, don't forget, also, what they're actually getting is, is the, the um, Lotus Mercedes supply. Ah, yes, I so suppose you're right. It, effectively, it does mean that uh, Renault are taking over, uh, as we know, they signed a letter for intent, but they are not going to do the thing we postulated a, lot, a few weeks ago. They're not going to be a kind of a sleeping partner for a year and carry on with the Mercedes contract. They are going to take over and run the Renault engine 
uh, in that for the for, for next season in the, in the way the notice may be. Now think about just before we talk about Manor. Remember they are they are on for an absolutely major boost because this year, of course, they've been running. They haven't been running this year. They're running last year's Ferrari engine, so they're going to get a two-year boost of engine. So they're probably gonna, they're probably going to literally turn up, regardless of what else they do, with about 110 extra horsepower. <laughs> Which is going to be make life a lot more difficult for them to keep the car on the track, and we'll actually find out if the chassis is any good. I suppose. Well, they're getting a new. They're, they're buying gearbox and rear suspension. Williams, who also, of course, run the um, the Mercedes, and that makes a lot of sense because obviously it's significantly cheaper to buy it off the shelf than develop it yourself, and it obviously works in kind of the scale for Williams. Is unfortunately these days, of course, are a privateer team and no longer a works team, so a few quid for them as well. Um, so it's really yeah, it, it does mean that the difficult bits have been done for them. Uh, they now have to package it and stick it in a clever aerodynamic package. So they're pretty much the same now as Sauber are, because Sauber have uh, their rear end supplied as well. Who are um, so yeah, that, but with, with the Ferrari engine. So you would think that Manor would move straight up to the the actual back of the midfield, um, mm. and you know even possibly ahead of Red Bull and Toro Rosso if they don't exist anymore. What repercussions do you think this will have for Red Bull and or Toro Rosso? Do you buy the thinly veiled threat in fact they're not even thinly veiled they are threats aren't they to leave we're not winning anymore this is only a marketing exercise if we're not winning we might as well leave and I, I kind of under, I'll be honest I kind of understand that thinking because it's not as if they're there to sell cars they're not a Ferrari or a Porsche or a BMW or a Honda or even a Mercedes-Benz or a McLaren um, they are a drinks company and mm-hmm. if they haven't got their name at the front then why are they there? It's like any other sponsor, I suppose, except just on a larger on a larger scale. Do you buy this? We're going to leave. They'd walk away from quite a lot of money, wouldn't they? Yeah, I mean, it, this is the, the the fact is that the requirements they have, which is a an engine from Ferrari, it's anyone left? But they want they want the 2016 engine is a reasonably fair. Um, request to make in a commercial organization but unfortunately the problem is they have two issues issue one they are um, in possession of some very good engineers and are a bit good and issue two is they are the most unpleasant people to have to work with mm. uh, i don't mean that on a day-to-day basis i'm sure they're lovely but i mean that they're, the way they have single-handedly torn Renault's reputation asunder with no qualms at all they have been appalling partners why would you want to partner with them? Indeed. And the interesting thing is... is I think that's the... Do you you know what, Nick? Mm. I think in everything else that you're talking about, and I know this business is business, and if there's money on the table and success potential, etc., etc., but I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Because if I'm anybody around that paddock, and you look at the way that they have behaved to a engine manufacturer or a manufacturer a name a brand that has been involved with formula one for so long because let's not forget it's not as if renault are just johnny come lately they go all the way back to the turbo engines and you know they have got formula one provenance and the way they've behaved to them has been difficult to say the least if if not to say just downright rude well, absolutely. I mean, even even when they were winning, they weren't very nice. They kept saying all the hot, yeah, the Renault's down on power. It's all with, with the little team that can. When in fact, the Renault team, the Renault may not have had much power, but it had great drivability. More importantly, they had completely tuned it to produce the right amount of exhaust gases to blow through the diffuser. So Renault yes, did a brilliant point. job for those four years. Got nothing for it, 
And in fairness, some of that fault lies with Renault. It's not all Red Bull. Renault did not market that well and made some some, some errors in how they, they went forward. But it's just that if you're going to use a word to describe um, Red Bull, you'd use the word, they are disingenuous. They are just unpleasant people to have to partner with. Now, I would say petulant. Actually. Yes, and you know they, you could also have used the word of you know, multiple word of, of, of rule stretching, but of course they've not managed to do it this time around. You know, they really have literally decided, oh, it's not going our way, I'm taking my ball away. They are a very young team and they are acting like a stroppy teenager, aren't they? That's basically yeah. what it comes down to. Yeah, I mean, and I think the interesting thing is, whenever they've threatened, you know, when when Caterham uh, and Manor had their financial problems, I know this isn't necessarily the arbiter of everything, but if you looked, oh, it's really bad news, and everyone, everyone in the in in the, on social media, oh, it's terrible, we can't let these teams die. When Red Bull said they're going to go, the the overwhelming was, yeah, off you go, don't care. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, the, I think the the thing is, obviously, if they do pull pull out, the good thing is they'll pay all their bills. The bad thing is there are 450 people or so employed in Milton Keynes, another 220 in Faenza, who are going to have a very uncertain future. So the thing about just giving up is you've got this massive pool of talent, including four very talented drivers, and you know that no one, no one's going to buy the team for two reasons: one, because no one wants to buy a team at the moment, and two, they haven't got an engine. Um, so you kind of think they, they've absolutely painted themselves into a corner with their petulance. What do they do? Do, do they, you know, you kind of think, well, what, what would you, what would you do if you if you were going to pull out? Do you decide to sell Red Bull or turn Red Bull? Yeah, you know, well, it's, it's this massive. Massive asset. Well, they are a one-trick pony, though. At the moment, they have not diversified, like say a McLaren, into streetcars, or they're not like Ferrari, who have got another business. They are just a Formula One team with a drinks manufacturer's name on the side of it. It is, it is a bit of an odd one. There's not an asset there now. Even Newey, Adrian Newey, who probably was their biggest asset, has sort of taken one step away. Although I, I guess he's still under contract to them in some way, shape. Or form. They've got buildings. They've got infrastructure. Well, they, um, they, they they can build anything. The only thing they, they don't have. Yep, exactly. The only thing they haven't got the ability to currently build currently only is an engine. Though apparently they've had been in, in close contact with uh, Mario Illin, who used to be part of Ilmore. I mean, the one thing they could turn around really quickly with that with with that sort of workforce is a, is a you know a rebellion rivaling LMP privateer car, and they would go straight in the privateer class. Yeah, that is a good point, and they've got all of the bits and pieces to do that. The other side of the story is that Manor really, next year, they've got to deliver, haven't they? Because they've got no excuses, nowhere to hide. Do you think that will change how they, A, can raise money and capitalise the team, B, what drivers they will choose? Well, that's a very good first question. I mean, the, 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 you know, he did some fantastic work last year, running through the ridiculous finances of both Caterham and Manor. Uh, Manor managed to relaunch themselves and survive, but I mean, what, what are the, yeah, they, they've not spent much this year. Let's be honest, they managed to get get out of jail free car and effectively run last year's car all year, which means their car costs are low, but they've still got to pay all the you know all the consumables, the moving people around. So you, you wonder, have they with the TV money they got and the, the money from the two drivers, you know, broken even this year? My guess is no, they've probably lost money again. Yeah, you know, the Mercedes deal will cost them. Will cost them even with taking Pascal Verlaine, and, and you know, and that will that be one spot they can't sell to somebody else. Good point. Um, where where are the sponsors? This is the thing. Where are the sponsors? Well, as I said, I think it was last week. McLaren have effectively run without a title sponsor now for how many years? 
three years? Uh, two years, yeah. Two and years. also they yeah. announced, it, whilst announcing Jensen Button was definitely staying with them, I think last Thursday or Friday, uh, they announced a new sponsor, which is Chandon, obviously half of Moet and Chandon, but that's not a new sponsor. That's just replacing Johnny Walker. It's a different um, brand in the Diageo group. Well, it's part of Louis Vuitton, Moet, Hennessy, LV, Which, is part, of, which yeah. is part of Diageo. With, and, and, yeah, I know it's, it, everything's part of everything these days, but effectively they're just replacing one drinks firm with another. You know, and it's a, Interesting. You know, a unique partnership. But yeah, people can't find the, – the, the money just isn't in there, and the, and the model is collapsing. Um, it's a slow collapse, uh, you know, and Formula One will survive because there will always be enough people who want to do it in a garagisti format. But how long it can survive in it like this, you kind of think it's, it's. If we lose Red Bull and we lose Toro Rosso, then of course we are back down to eighteen cars with Haas coming in. So the question is, does that trigger the three car rule, or does it actually wait another? Does it have to go down to sixteen? It does look like Renault will will come in and uh, rescue Lotus. So, interestingly, if we lose the two teams, we don't actually hit the point where three cars mm. need to happen. Um, Fernando Alonso uh, in another struggling team, um, not Red Bull this time, but McLaren, as we mentioned, with new sponsor Sean Dunn, or at least uh, a replacement sponsor. Um, probably no significant progress through to the end of this season. But he has been. there has been more details coming out, and he's apparently demanding some kind of clause if he's going to steer that things get better over the closed season in the testing and possibly even right up to the first race of next season. Well, there is, of course, no testing, really. Uh, I think there's a post-Abu Dhabi test. Correct. Wow. And then they've got to wait till the last week of February to get the new point. But the thing is, though, the Honda still have to revise what they've got. They're back on the tokens again and the inter-year upgrades. And Unless you know, it is interesting that a lot of the problems people actually runs with people think it runs with the regeneration systems, and in many ways that's one of the areas that's freest for improvements. They might be able to um, pick up a bit more. They can work out what they've done wrong, um, but it's you know you can't see them leaping from where they are to the front. Yeah, but you know with a with a good with a nice wind behind them, they'll start competing with Force India. Um, you just can't make that much of a jump in a single year against teams that are very, very good at doing what they're doing. Now, they might pick up two positions by just the fact that Red Bull teams don't exist anymore, but uh, my guess is that the, the, the a way will be found to keep those te- all the teams on the grid. So it's going to be um, another difficult year and, and, and Fernando Alonso, another year where he's just going to be frustrated and, and once again he's changed teams at entirely the wrong time. Yes, and whinging on the radio when he's out there. Uh, he wasn't really whinging. He was actually he was he was again he wasn't whinging. It's not the toys out the pram we hear from Fettel or even occasionally from from Hamilton. It was completely pre- you know that's a man uh, moaning in the most intelligent way possible. In his, well, intelligent perhaps right in the most political way possible. Let's say yes, calculated to make the most uh, impact. Should we say? Mm. Well, with we also found out last week, of course, that Roman Grosjean is heading over to Haas, presumably to sit uh, as lead driver alongside Gutierrez, who hasn't been uh, announced as yet, but you still feel confident that that... There's a Mexican Grand Prix coming up. Yes, exactly. You feel confident that that will happen. I think many others do too. Uh, so that leaves, potentially then, a seat at Renault Lotus, or mm-hmm. Lotus Renault, or whatever it's going to be called next year. Jolly and Palmer saying that 
if he's not in a race seat next year, he's probably going to be doing nothing, putting pressure on himself already, really. Well, he'll be doing nothing then, won't he? You don't think he'll get the race seat? No, because there's Jean-Éric Verne, who's got that advantage for Renault being French, there's Ben Ocon, um, there is a number of other drivers, and nothing is going to happen uh, until the Red Bull and uh, uh, Toro Rosso situation is de- uh, decided, because there could be four drivers on the marketplace who people be quite keen to sign up. So, um, you know, that's not going to be decided. I can't, you know, I don't think that, and this is nothing about Jolie or Jolie's talent. Jolie is not the right nationality for that particular team at the moment. And I don't think he's got enough money to swing it the other way. So, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the curse of the, the, uh, standing at the back test driver. You know, he, he, at least he managed to get in the car. So he's done something. Um, yeah, and he's so in the car as well for a bit more in the end of the season. Yeah, I, mate, he's, there, he's there for just, I think he's got just about every single Friday, hasn't he? Right. Uh, Friday first session. I think he's doing nine or, or 11 during the season. So, yeah, I mean, he's got a lot of actual miles, which is you know, different from most of the people who sign up and stand at the back. Yeah, um, that's true. But, uh, you know, he's going to start uh, yeah, making phone calls to either top-running P2 cars or... Uh, uh, P1 cars all do what um, Jonathan very successfully did with um, the late Justin Wilson and, and take him, him him over to the US. Good point. Uh, if some teams, including McLaren, are worried about their performance on the track, who this week has been worried about their performance in the pit lane? Oh, I haven't seen this one. Tell me. That's Williams. Rob Smedley saying that uh, continuing pit stop problems are blighting the team. I thought it was just. It, 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 I just. I thought it was. It was. It was. It was tactical problems, and then. And then the one time they tried, it doesn't mean different. They get. They, they. They get that. They're unlucky on that one as well. Well, um, they did manage to get a wrong tyre, didn't they? On yeah, that was that was, a, that was a classic um, uh, mistake. Yeah. Fred Carr was on. We enjoyed that mistake. It was great. Um, no, I mean, I think you know, it's it's. Is it important to Williams to to be third in the championship? Every position is lots of money. Hmm. Um. You know, they, they, it's they, they, the battle obviously against Red Bull is is circuit dependent. Um, you know, the Williams comes into his own when power is more important, when uh, downforce is more important. It's it's Red Bull uh, coming up. We have um, actually a selection of, of intermediate circuits, really. So you would think that normally um, Williams be slightly ahead, so they should have a, a little bit of advantage, but. You know, Red Bull do have, you know, when, they, when they're not blaming things, do have the ability to actually perform very well uh, randomly at certain circuits and tyres work. And I think they're they're more confident this weekend than they were last weekend. Um, and I think, you know, it would be, I think it'd be a much closer grid. I still think Mercedes is going to win. But it'd be a much closer grid than it was uh, in Japan in, in Sochi. But um, no, I, mean, I think it's, I think realistically, you probably see um, Red Bull just about having enough if they go lose complete focus. Um, to pip uh, Williams, not that, of course. If they give up, they're in the money, of course, because it's played a year in year in arrears. Once you carry on doing that next year, exactly, <laughs> and that's why I don't think they'll walk away whilst there's still millions of dollars of Bernie dollars uh, up for grabs. And don't forget, they don't get reallocated, do they? Well, they get reallocated to Bernie. Well, um, exactly. well, sorry, they don't get reallocated to teams. Um, any more news of the um, the the action that Sauber and who was the other team? No, uh, Manor, wasn't it? They, was... Yeah, Sauber and uh, Force India. Yeah, no, Force they, India, they, excuse they, me. No, because that's now gone to the EU, so that's going to be a long time with nothing happening. Mm. Um, I think the uh, the Bosman ruling took five years, didn't it? Yes. Four and a half, five years. Um, that obviously changed the face of football. I think it's uh, – the point is they've done it. 
and that's the indication they've made and it's really now the level of brinkmanship about how that affects um what bernie reacts to it whether he takes it seriously but more importantly obviously it, it makes it very difficult um for them to float the company at any point whilst you have a large point. action going on in good the EU, point it completely makes the value even though it doesn't intrinsically affect the value because it's only about allocation of prize money because it's in, it, you know because it affects the way the competition commission sees the sport it means that there's nothing definite about how the sport is run and you know the, the contract which is the media contract which is you know, the, the hub of the whole thing could get torn up you know mm. the, the, that is that, that was what was avoided what five or six years ago by gentleman you know when max mosey in the early late 90s sold 100 years of rights for no money at all to uh the burning. I mean, that nearly got thrown out. And that would mean the, the, the A, the FA could have got a lot more money, but B, it would have been possible for someone to come in and take the rights to the F1 and own all the trademarks. Hmm. Um, it is Sochi at, uh, in Russia this weekend, this time last year, or at this race last year. Mercedes gained their first ever uh, world title for constructors. They need three points more than Ferrari on Sunday to do that. Can they do that? Nicky Lauda thinks perhaps not. Is this just uh, tittle-tattle, headline-gathering, managing people's well. ex- expectations? They've gone back down to the two softest tyres, and those were the two tyres which they struggled with um, in Singapore. However, I don't believe the weather in Sochi is partic- in October is particularly similar to the nighttime weather in Singapore. Um, the, the track surface apparently is similar. They're saying it's the same sort of tarmac, but given the fact that the Singapore tarmac is run over by cars and trucks all all, um, all year, and this tarmac is left out in the freezing weather and uh, not used very much, even though there are some road sections, of course, within Sochi, there is some permanent sections too. Um, my guess is no. I think that Nicky's just doing some expectation settings. I said my expectations are going to be closer, but my expectation is that, uh, you know, barring you know errors which have do tend to turn up, it'll be a one-two for um, Mercedes again, and they'll pick up another uh, constructor championship. Will which it is well deserved? Will it matter that they've gone for the the two softer? Uh, Pirelli have gone for the two softer commas. Last year it was soft and medium. I think this year it's. Um, soft and super soft, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think it's designed because um, I don't remember the race last year, but Rosberg started on pole and made a complete pig's ear of it on the first lap, and then flat spotted his tyres. So actually came at the end of lap one and changed to the the other way about the, t- the medium tyre as it was then, uh, and then ran the whole rest of the race on it. With 50, fifty-two drop. laps, yes. So they went uh, possibly, boys. Uh, that tyre's a little bit hard. So they've now switched to super soft and soft with the concept of people having to do at least two stops, possibly three. Um, you know, with a tarmac that's only in its second year and not used very often, you know, the, 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 the absolute wear is very hard to assess. So they'll find when they get there. But I think you know, the unique issues in Singapore. There's no reason to think they're going to come back at any of the tracks that come down because none of them get close to that sort of ambient temperature or track temperature or humidity or strange usage. The thing to remember is in Singapore, the one time when they ran during the daylight, <laughs> Mercedes were faster again. Yes, um, good point. So I have no idea what dark did or whether it was the, the difference, the fact that obviously once it gets dark, the air temperature and track temperature even out, don't they? So it's, um, I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but you know, there is, it's an anomaly. I'm sure it'll worry them when they get to Singapore next year, but I think any any talk of it being a major issue uh, for any of the circuits left on this season, given the, the weather we expect in those tracks, because of the time of year it is, is 
I think just trying to push the envelope of excitement a little bit too much. Mm. You're listening to Midweek Motorsport. Nick Damon with me, John Hindhoff. Uh, just coming up to 25 past eight here in the UK, a little before that, uh, in fact, at the moment. And uh, it is Series 10, Episode 39. Uh, let's move on to two wheels. Now, last weekend, and I still mm-hmm. haven't seen the uh, MotoGP from last weekend. I've completely, sorry, weekend before, I completely forgot to get it on the planet, put the World Superbike on uh, for this weekend, kept away, obviously, travelling Sunday, uh, got back late Sunday night. So first thing Monday morning, um, cup of coffee, came down early to watch the two races. Oh, dear. Wasn't the best at Magnicore, was it? Um, first race, wet and drying, and... Well, yeah. And of course, the championship already decided. So yeah, second place in the championship still up for grabs, but but as you say, it wasn't particularly good. Uh, Leon Haslam changed tyres in the first race and didn't get any better. Second race, at least, the the bikes looked quicker and there was a bit of scrapping uh, going on. But um, Johnny Ray, couple of couple of wins, was it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, it's. Um... What can I say? I mean, it, it comes down to the fact that, you know, Johnny Ray has dominated the season. Um, yeah, we're looking at a one, two, three, four for GB, and then you kind of wonder why we have such problems in getting people in the top rides in MotoGP when mm. we're dominating superbikes. But it is a very different uh, discipline these days, and it's, you know... Yeah, and we've certainly... got five out of the top ten if you add Alex Laws yeah, on the Alex Suzuki. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I have to be really honest with you. I have watched some of these races, but it's not Fogarty versus... Uh, it's Ed, not. Uh, it's it, not. It, it, and I, and I, I, I think I think I've said before. I, I think it's a, it's a it's a lovely little feeder series, but it's just which unfortunately doesn't feed anybody. Um, and it's never been the same since you went control tire all uh, so many years ago. I mean, many many years ago, went control tire, and suddenly you lost all the um lo- the local hot shots coming in for their for their one off runs. It was an open tire environment. Bit of a shame um that because it, it actually the track was much better suited to motorcycles than I thought it would be. There were some really interesting overtaking spots, and we did have some interesting overtakes. Anycore is a really, really good track, just in completely the wrong place. And I'm not saying France, I'm just saying a part of France. That is a good track. It's it's very safe, it's well-designed, it's got some interesting features in it, it's got some different features in it. It's a good track. I mean, you know, it's... it deserves to be on any calendar if it wasn't so blooming in the middle of nowhere. Mm. Staying on uh, two wheels, uh, another injury for Mark Marquez. He's left hand again. No, that was when we talked. We, we talked about last Wednesday. It's the same one. All right, okay. Uh, he did it on the Wednesday. Right, okay. But now you see Jorge Lorenzo's hurt himself as well. All right, has he? Oh, Only slightly. He fell off and um, did his shoulder again. There appears to be more tennis accidents and one Montoya had that he fell off a bike as well um, so yeah so Lorenzo hurt himself um, he says it's fine but obviously he had severe problems last year with multiple fractures collarbone it's all pinned and apparently had to go and after he fell off and did his shoulder they had to go and uh, check he hadn't done anything to the alignment of his collarbones apparently it's fine um, he has done the ligaments which is the sort of thing which you or I would be, you know, on painkillers and, 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 and lounging about and watching television and eating chocolates and he's going to be running a motorcycle at 200 miles an hour and it probably won't affect him at all. But, of course, it is a, a key point. The shoulder is an incredibly important part of motorcycle riding, obviously, because they take all the force, your weight and more. 
um, the g-force when you're braking and that's that's why shoulder injuries are so important it's the actual they're where the strength comes to muscle the bike around but most importantly in the under the braking and they're in japan of course this weekend in ring montague yes Mategi. um normally gives us decent racing around that some changes at mark vds for next year scott redding has had the spanish archer elbow and is replaced by Oh, you've got me on that one. Tito uh, Rabat's coming up from Moto 2. So has Reading gone out entirely? No, Reading's gone, Reading's gone somewhere else, hasn't he? Reading's got a different run. Reading's ride, who's Reading riding for next year? I do know this. Um, he's in Ducati, is he? Well, if you say so. You're our a, expert on this. I think he, yeah, I think he's got Ducati uh, ride next year. Uh, not not a factory, the, the satellite factory. Uh, right. Premac, Premac Ducati, yeah. uh, replacing Yoni Hernandez. Yeah. Oh, I, knew, I knew I'd break my work at some point. <laughs> Uh, who's, who's going to the Aspar team? So yeah, it's, it's a bit—it's a bit musical yeah. chairs. What I like about this, what I do like about this, Nick, is there is the opportunity for Tito, who is a cross mortal two champion, to move up into the big show because in cars it's so so difficult. There does seem to be a better progression for riders who want to go. Not all riders do because some of them are being paid to be in mortal two and paid. Very well indeed, but Tito has got the opportunity and he's moved up to the Mark VDS Honda team. Yeah, I mean, I think the... the so I think he's been five years in Moto2, so... The, pro- the progression within um, Moto, um, I mean, MotoGP is actually even, yeah, you, know, you, you go Moto3, Moto2, but even once you hit the big time, you have a progression through there, because yeah, you, you have the claiming teams, then you have the satellite teams, then you have the works team. So you kind of have a, you know, a progression actually within the grid of that as well. So, yeah, I think it works quite well. But obviously there is a, a huge, um, uh, like everything else, there's a, big, there's a big stop at the top because you've got, you know, three teams. It was, uh, yeah, up until this year, it was two teams worth joining us and four riders. Now at least it looks like Ducati. They, they fade a bit towards the back end this year. Which, you know, they've, they've got a lot of that injury. They've got there's six bikes which are worth being on. There's a good chance that Suzuki will move forward and might have eight bikes that are worth being on. But certainly, prior to the last couple of years, it's been there has been that log jam right at the top. How how much does it help that that Tito is already with Mark VDS? Because obviously, that's who he's riding for in in Mortal Two, and and there is that again something that we don't get so much anymore in motor racing. There's, the junior teams aren't there. We reported exclusively here on Midweek Motorsport a couple of weeks ago about a tie up between Arden and Jota in motor racing two separate disciplines of the sport but it's it's not as if mclaren have a proper junior team or ferrari have a junior team i suppose red bull sponsor drivers but not in the same way as having you know well, red bull do have one actually red bull do have a proper motor gp junior team and have a team in, in toro rosso no, that's, that, yes that's, that's the same concept it's not quite the same because yes but it's not, not in gp2 though is it no, no, but they're they doing what they do. They've got a satellite team in the main show. Yes, um, yes. I suppose I that's all similar. those years ago, we did talk about the fact that it, you know, I'm sure the ideal solution would be for all the major teams they were then to have a satellite team as well. I and mean, we were talking about, you know, Manor being the satellite team from the McLaren at the time, and we were talking about, you know, uh, Ferrari having Sauber as their satellite team, and it was, you know, and, and developing drivers and using the, with the satellite team using last year's cars was kind of. I can't remember how long ago it was, three or four years, I think. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's um, the, the progression is important. You get, you do get to a, you know, the, the, the pyramid always narrows towards the top. And I suppose perhaps the one thing really is, is unlike car racing, there isn't really an alternative pinnacle. You are really, you know, there's no WEC 
option. There's no touring car option. Mm. Um, yeah, superbikes is a, is, is a different discipline, and you don't see anyone dropping down from MotoGP to do superbikes. Um, not, not now, not very often nowadays. So you kind of you, you hit there, and that's it. You know, it's uh, but then again, of course, the first difference there, and I'm answering my own question here, of course, is that realistically, your your career span in in two wheels is is, is on the whole. There are exceptions, much much shorter than in cars. Yes. You know, unless Lewis Hamilton, Valentino or Rossi. Well, no, but Lewis Hamilton's thirty this year, and everyone say he's about he's 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 hitting his prime now. You know, you would think these next three years would be his best three or four years. Mm. Got the experience, but, uh, but and he's been racing non-stop since he was eight. If you've been riding bikes non-stop since you're eight, by the time you're thirty, you know, unless you're Van, you know, Rossi, you are destroyed physically. Mm. Um, you know, so you perhaps you don't need to have the the the, the refuge um, in a into into a place which is slightly safer or slightly you know, um, taxing different parts of you as, as it would be with endurance racing or touring car or anything like that. Mm. Uh, yes, I suppose you're. No, that's a, that's a fair point. Well made. Uh, and thank you very much, Nick, for being with us tonight. Short and sweet from uh, Mr. Damon. And uh, we will speak to you again next week. Cheers, mate. Bye. Thanks to uh, Nick Damon. Let's move on to another one of our regular contributors and joining us from Supreme Headquarters Endurance Directive. That's the shed to you and me. It is Graham Goodwin. Good evening, Graham. Evening, everybody. Ah, yes. How are you feeling this evening? Uh, f- oh, simply fabulous. I'm surprised you couldn't tell. <laughs> well, you didn't make the trip to Petite at the weekend, and I know. Thank God. And well, you, you see, you were you were complaining about that at the start of the week. But yeah, I was. I mean, it 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 didn't look fun, John. <sighs> well, uh, I shall I shall leave the listener to make up their own um, their own ideas about it, uh, decisions about it, because uh, the the pictures were pretty good on the uh, on the IMSA app. Um, first first thing, end of the season. Uh, let, let's uh, let, well, no, actually, let's do it the right way around. Let's talk about the race first of all. Um, got to what twenty past seven or whatever it was, um, sort of seven hours and something into the race. So we we got more into the race than than perhaps a lot of people thought. We had just over an hour's worth of red flag in that. Difficult. I said it in commentary. You're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. But I thought Bob Barfield and the rest of his team handled it pretty well, to be honest. Bob showing himself to be hands-on, taking a car out and driving at speed, getting out and supervising the digging of draining ditches, albeit in his suede loafers. Um, you know what? I, I actually thought the way it was handled, you can pick apart individual decisions about stopping and starting but overall you look at that and I think we got more racing than most people thought we might he was doing a very good job of satisfying himself his decisions were going to be the right ones and were going to be safe and that's all you can ask I think in those circumstances we could pick it apart John and talk about whether or not it should have been restarted or stopped or whatever but the reality I think was that um I think there was one thing I would have liked to have heard from race control uh, through that. And the the only thing I think was missing was a very public call for cars not to reverse back onto the track. That did scare me a bit, That yes. was terrifying on at least two occasions and actually rather more than that now I think about it. Um, I think I suspect that will be an edict that comes back. Uh, but it was 
pretty terrible in terms of the conditions. Uh, but yeah, it was very good to see uh, a race director with very hands-on attitude to it. Um, massive kudos, by the way, for everybody involved in that race, uh, both you know the, the crews, the drivers themselves, particularly the corner workers, and for that matter, my colleagues in the media who are out there mm-hmm. in the middle of that one as well, and not least, of course, the fans that stuck with it. Um, it, it. It just looked murderous, the whole thing. The the whole the whole week um, could have could have descended into farce actually, and as I say, I think it 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 was a a tribute to how IMSA have come on as an organisation this year. That what we saw is what we saw, and we'll talk about that and, and look back at the season at the moment. Obviously, the big talking point is going to be about a GTLM car winning. We've seen non top class cars get close in the past we had in fact in 1998 a Porsche GT car as it was named right then in second place but in fairness that car was as close to what we would call a prototype now as quite often uh, quite a lot of the prototypes are Um, but it, it wasn't a top class car I think we've seen cars third and fifth and eighth in the past but when it came down to it there was a couple of things I think we should point out it wasn't just the Porsche that led on pace both Corvettes did Uh, and a BMW and a BMW and a BMW yes well remembered Um, and what this has come down to is a couple of things one is the extraordinary development of GTLM cars into factory backed and therefore developed racing machines which I think should, hopefully that result of the weekend, should make people look slightly differently at GTLM and not just say, well, well it's just GT3 in a bit, because clearly it isn't. It's, it's just not. No, I mean, these are extraordinarily well-developed cars. I think there's, there are, you're right, John, there's several lessons to be drawn. Tyres is certainly one of them, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, you know, the ability to actually get the traction down appeared to be another. Yes. Uh, and it was very clear that the prototypes, for whatever reason, were struggling. And you'd struggle to get beyond the the blindingly obvious difference, which is the difference between a spec tyre, and that's got its good and its bad sides, uh, and a development tyre. And I'm pretty certain I heard you repeat several times on coverage that I was listening to from back here in the UK that we're talking about the same wet weather Michelins in particular as we see in the WEC. Now, they're very, high, very highly developed. Of course, we're uh, very used to uh, torrential rain in various parts of Europe, and it showed. And, you know, uh, I think you, you may have read by now a little piece I put together, John, uh, that looked at these kind of so-called freak results, cars that have won that perhaps were in a class that wasn't expected to even compete for an overall win. And I, I do strongly believe there is a kind of a timeline that goes back to, rather bizarrely, the last time we saw a Porsche win in a mixed-class race uh, in North America. Back in 2003, it was a Rolex 24 Hours of Daytona, where the TRG, the Racers Group Porsche, won, mm. uh, featuring one Mr. T. Bernard and one Mr. J. Bergmeister, if I remember rightly, mm-hmm. on that occasion. Um, it was the first year of the Daytona prototypes. It rather embarrassed those cars. We had a similar result the following year where the Orbit car actually came second overall to a DP winning. And that, I think, was the beginning of the end for what was then either NGT or GT2 in Grand Am Racing. They then went off and did other things. The, the uh, factories got behind them. They became a weapon of choice to several factories. 
uh, as, as a factory program, which went with it, of course, with development rubber. And by the time we came around to this new unified series, we were looking at a very different sort of class, not Pro-Am anymore, but full Pro. But this time, the negotiating position was made, being made not just by the factory OEMs that made the cars, but also the tyres as well. And so there you go, a decade or more on, and actually the genesis of what we saw this year happened in 2003. I thought Jeremy Shaw made a very interesting point. He always does. Um, he, uh, referring to something that Brian Sellers was talking about, um, you know, we have always seen Falcon in the last, what, six, seven years that they've been involved in in American sports car racing. And yes, it is that long. This It seems like only yesterday that they first turned up. That They have had the reputation, uh, rightly in some cases, I remember a very wet weather race at mid-Ohio that Wolf Hensler romped through the field in the last couple of laps, of having a very good Falcon wet tyre. I'm not sure that that is exactly the case now, because in turning their attention to building tyres that are good in more all-round conditions, maybe, I'm not going to say took the eye off the ball, but maybe their uh, focus was somewhere else. But what that did do was really made... Michelin sit up and take notice and Jeremy mentioned this at the weekend and I hadn't thought about that before but he said there's a tyre war in GTLM and there has been ever since Falcon came in and you think well there's only one other manufacturer but when one other manufacturer is concentrating on building a tyre that's good in one particular area purely to you know get that result he's absolutely right and Brian Sellers made the point, and and Jeremy picked up on it. Nissan have uh, Nissan, uh, Michelin haven't been sitting on their hands. Oh no! They realised that they had to do something, and find themselves some technology and some t- tyre development. They couldn't sit back in the American series and continually be beaten by this quote unquote newcomer every time it got a bit wet and I hadn't even thought of it in that way before well it is this is the whole point of a, it doesn't matter whether or not it's one car one uh, you know, two tyre manufacturers whatever it is the reality is that if uh, the coverage you get for the race that you're interested in and in Michelin's uh, terms it's the GTLM race if the coverage you're getting is what a smackdown Falcon tyres were handing down to you in questionable conditions, what are you going to do about it? You're going to go and build a better train set, and that's exactly what they've done. Uh, I, you know, uh, uh, Golf clap and more in admiration for what they were able to do with the cars uh, this weekend in what, what were, you know, biblically terrible um, conditions. Um, but you've got to take your hat off. Whatever the issue around BOP, whatever, there was a reality there, John, which was that the number 911 car um, just ran a near faultless race uh, yep. in a race where that was the most difficult thing in the world to produce. Particularly when Patrick Peeler, PP as they call him in the team, um, was you know on on the road to a solo championship because the vagaries of the rules and who's been in the car and, and who hasn't. Peeler put the fastest lap of the race in, in part down to the fact that uh, he was in that car at the at the right time for the conditions, but you cannot overlook once again one in Tandy uh, no, of this parish, not too far away from where I'm standing right now, and not just his performance here, but his extraordinary performance in sports car racing this year in a. Okay, I'm going to use the highest compliment that I can give Nick in a Vic Elford-esque way of jumping between different vehicles. Now, not with the variety that Quick Vic did, accept it, 
But frankly, if you'd given Nick anything to drive this year, he would have. But I think he's now won in LMP1, LMP2 and GTLM and some big races as well, of course. He has, of course, done that. I mean, oddly enough, I had a conversation in the wake of the race to none other than David Brabham. The question mm-hmm. I asked him, I mean, look, Nick's been a driver of quality for as long as I can remember. But uh, I asked him, you know, what is it about race drivers that when they get that breakthrough win, as Nick did, of course, at Le Mans this year overall, that actually it seems to elevate them to another level. And he gave me a great answer. He said it just operates at so many levels. It's just that that, that kind of that additional the decimal points of self-confidence and self-belief that actually yes. can carry you through. I think the difference between the two drivers in that car, and let's not forget, John, there could have been a third and they didn't require the services of Ricard Leeds mm. uh, in the race. But Patrick Pillay, generally speaking, when he was at the wheel of the Porsche, he was defending a lead. Uh, he was trying to, you know, to, to go away and keep the, the other guys behind him. Nick's uh, role in certainly the two uh, standout phases of the race was an attacking drive to retake the lead or to take the lead. And on both occasions, he provided us with, with I think, memories that will stay with all of us that watched it mm. for a very, very long time. I just wonder how far ahead that Porsche would have been had it not been for the vagaries of the regulations under full-course yellow pit stops, which meant that the uh, prototype cars were allowed to pit first, thereby getting track position back. Yep. Um, and effectively putting putting those cars back uh, ahead, and and Nick having to fight through sometimes half a dozen uh, prototype cars before he inevitably retook the lead again. And the same should be said for the Corvettes as well. I thought Ollie Gavin's drive was outstanding, notwithstanding a little drop at Turn One. But frankly, the, every driver who was out there did a great job. The fact that we didn't have more and more serious accidents was quite remarkable. The spectators. I have no clue, no clue even where to start. I thought I'd seen endurance at Fuji a couple of years ago when uh, I was, you and I were, were watching those guys out in the rain um, for, you know, five, six hours and they saw 16 laps behind the safety car. Um, that was up, right up there, given that was all week. Amazing spectator endurance uh, at Petit Le Mans this year. And uh, a Petit Le Mans, I think, that was worthy of the name uh, not just the 10 hours of, of road Atlanta. Um, what it did also produce uh, was a very close end to the championship season with Shao Barbosa and Christian Filipaldi coming out as drivers champs by three points in the prototype category over Michael Valiente and Richard Westbrook. But it should be mentioned that uh, within 20 points, you had the top five crews in that, all the way down to uh, Ricky and Jordan Taylor, who were on 292 points, as to 309 uh, for the the winner, which was, you know, that was pretty uh, pretty impressive. Um, Action Express, three points win again, and again down to Wayne Taylor Racing, quite, uh, quite remarkable, and that obviously meant that uh, Chevrolet uh, just beat Ford, that was a, a little bit uh, uh, easier. In GT Le Mans, uh, it was a six-point victory for Porsche, turned around at the end. GT Daytona, um, Aston Martin not registered for points there, so they won ahead of Audi by three points. In the GT battles, they obviously Patrick Pele won, and in GT Daytona, we were all looking at Christina Nielsen and the two drivers from Paul Miller Racer, Dion von Moltke and Christopher Haaser. And, of course, Bill Swedler and Townsend Bell nipped through, albeit with 
Bill Sweedler telling Porkies um, rather inadvisedly to Shea Adam, our continental tie pit lane reporter, and saying that he'd done his time in the car. He did one lap in the car behind the safety car. That's what he did on his way to his championship. But fortunately, the other driver in the car at the weekend was also a um, silver driver or a bronze driver and did enough time to make that work. And they sneaked through, sneaked through for the victory. I mean, so there was plenty on the line, at least. Oh, absolutely. You know, there, there was plenty happily... Uh, for you guys struggling with you know, a race that was fluid in every single sense of the word, um, there was plenty to talk about on that front as well. And you know, it, it wasn't that it wasn't enjoyable. What you were looking at, I think, for an awful lot of the time, John, was, was you know, you're almost waiting for the next incident, and that's never a pleasant no, way to watch a motor I, race. I did feel at some stage like a Speedway commentator sort of doing four laps and then getting a breath for about ten minutes. Um, it, it, it was fast and furious when it was, was happening. Happening. Um, away from the track and the race, we said in summing up in the Michelin Post Race Tech, Jeremy and I both saying it was a great season of racing. And when you add the Continental Tire Sports Car Challenge, which came to its head the previous day, and congratulations to CJ Wilson Racing, by the way, for Absolutely. nicking that one away in ST. Uh, a little bit more uh, clean cut for uh, Robin. Uh, Liddell and Andrew Davies, Robin, so often the bridesmaid finally getting a, a championship to his name there with Andrew Davies um, ably backing him up this year. And a win for Ashley Freiburg as well in the uh, IHG Rewards Club BMW, their first of the season. Jeremy and I, I think, were in, in unison of saying that everything else aside, the racing has been good this year and we've talked more about the racing than anything else. That's not what we would have been saying at this time last year. Indeed, we nope. weren't. So, steps forward in in everything for IMSA. Uh, absolutely right. And, you know, I think they do need um, a rapid answer to their, their prototype problem, John. There's not enough strength and depth in the championship. What little strength there, there has been, I'm afraid, is all got the same badge on the front and the back, and that's not a good place to be. Yeah. Uh, 2017 can't come quickly enough for IMSA, and I think what they need to be doing at the moment is courting you know, potential takers for that formula. Uh, we've obviously had the announcement in the week that uh, those cars will be called Daytona Prototype International. Uh, I'll go on the record right now as saying I believe that's a mistake. I think that's not the image they want. To- I, I find that tremendously confusing i find that actually tremendously silly uh you know if what you're trying to do is to is to broaden the kind of reach of a united series to have a direct reference to to be honest with you a rather exclusive club um you know from the grand am days i don't think it's the smartest move they've made i would have well also graham the, the whole ethos behind the new 2017 regulations the one that is front and centre is to create a global formula for this level of prototype racing. And if you're going to, if 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 IMSA are going to start calling it DPI, and you know we're calling it LMP2, um, yep. I mean I I would have had no problem with them just calling it their prototype class. No, I mean I think at the end of the day I, I I'd be interested, and I, I, when when I next get the opportunity, I will take the opportunity to speak to the higher ups at IMSA and ask what was going on with that decision. It's a poor one, I think, is what it comes down to. Not going to make more of it than it is, but in a situation where you need the numbers to come 
and get get on board with this. I just don't think that does the job. Well, and I, not- as I say, Graham, I think it's confusing because you know I. You and I have the job, uh, often, of explaining things to people. We have a difficult enough sport. I'm not saying make the sport easier. I'm not saying dumbing it down. Far from it. But it is sometimes difficult for new people coming into the sport to understand the different categories. If we're then going to start calling, and I've had this issue before with GTLM and GTE, um, and GTC and GT3, and blah de blah de blah blah Right, guys... Do what they're doing, you know, Nick and I just talked about motorcycling there and the differences between motorcycling and particularly on the MotoGP package. Moto3, Moto2, MotoGP. It's sensible. It makes a progression. We shouldn't be doing this and throwing more nomenclature at people than they can say. And by the way, I'll tell you now as a commentator who works across many series, they all get very precious about it and woe betide you if you call the GTE car a GTLM or vice versa just by a slip of the tongue. And I'm, I'm sorry, I am going to end up saying, well, that's an LMP2 car. Isn't yeah. it? It, it? And it is a shame because it's pointless. Um, you know, what, what we really should be doing here is actually working everybody together to get better grids, more sustainable grids. And, you know, it does strike me if you were looking for something to, to, to have a common theme back to where you could build something, what's wrong with IMSA GTP? for instance, or, you know, what's wrong with that? I get why they would not want to call it LMP2. It's their premier class. They don't want something with the number two in it. I get it. But you're right, prototype does the job. But if you're looking for something that's got heritage with a known audience in your home market, sorry, guys, but you could have done better than that. That is not a smackdown to the old... LMS slash Grand Am Wars back in the day. It's simply the recognition that if what you're looking to do is to build a bigger audience, that's not the correct decision. However, on on the very subject of building a bigger audience, one thing that has undoubtedly been a massive success this year is the IMSA app, uh, relaunched oh, yeah. earlier in the year after a bit of teething troubles and in fairness, they, they've taken on an, uh, an awful lot. They effectively uh, used the old uh, ALMS website to start with to be, to be to turn it over to IMSA.com and gradually through the season that's been migrated over. But the flexibility that three platforms, iOS, Windows and Android, uh, in an app format has given people on their smart devices as well as their laptops and, and whatever. And the ability for free, to be able to tune in in sound and vision um, has been a massive, massive success. Uh, yeah, and I think, you know, there are lessons for other series. So, you know, it's a bit like, John, you know, we have this regular conversation about the way in which you handle neutralising a race under caution and the excellent change we've seen in mindset right across motorsport to pick up the best lessons, no matter where they've come from, the not invented here rule does not appear to apply there. And Agreed. I couldn't be more grateful. It would be good to see the same apply here because actually everyone's struggling to build an audience, putting a, a, a barrier there for, frankly, nonsensical commercial reasons in, in some instances because the numbers, frankly, don't sustain that argument. Uh, that, but putting those barriers in place doesn't make any sense what you want to be doing is build the audience first. Invest in building the audience, uh, but but don't start to re- artificially restrict it just to make a few dollars. And uh, we got, you know, we we can just see by the traffic on the internet uh, when we're doing the races that people are taking 
the race with, the, with them, they're listening. I mean, being able to listen has been something that people have got used to now all the way back to 1998 at Petit Le Mans when the, Don Pianos and Joe Widensall um, had the, the foresight to, to put the, what was then called the radio web together, which was groundbreaking uh, at the time. So the audio portion people kind of expect, but gradually the video side of things is growing and as bandwidth and internet speeds get quicker, people expect that, though I suppose watching on your on your phone whilst you're driving the car should be a bit of a no-no. But certainly at the track, people to have access immediately to yeah, absolutely. timing and scoring as well as replays and and, and the audio. It's, it's a new way of interacting with people and that along with social media, as we've said many times before, has been part of the renaissance, I think, in endurance racing. And IMSA seem to be going along the right road. I think there's still one or two things that could be better integrated, particularly the television product um, in, particularly in the highlights of some of the shows and even the, possibly the live television project uh, pro, um, product needs needs looking at and I think they'd be the first to admit that but generally speaking I, I, I think they'd score pretty high on an end of term report for that wouldn't it? I think so. I think, you know, you, you take your positives. We, we can be sometimes accused, quite correctly, of being professional critics. Um, you know, a professional critic should be balanced. And I think in balance here, what would I say? I think there's a lot of things on the report card that should show a massive improvement, not least the atmosphere in the paddock and the MC oh, meetings. Yes. Uh, but, you know, there's still work to do, principally, John. Their, uh, their challenge now is going to be integrating what we hope and believe will be an increased number and variety of GT3 cars into GTD next year, and it's finding a solution to the prototype problem. Yes, uh, even a short-term solution to the prototype problem, because at the moment, I'm not seeing before... 2017 or certainly late 2016 how that is going to change next year nope. um, indeed the likelihood is we will lose Ganassi because I'm still I still haven't heard anybody give me a definitive uh, answer as to whether they'll continue running that whilst they're running two GT cars. I think they're looking looking for a solution, John, but one is not currently available. Clearly, it needs funding from somewhere, and it will not be from Ford. Yes, um, and looking at some of the other teams and the. Uh, paucity of quote-unquote proper sponsors. I mean, you know, Formula One on down, as as I was saying, it's been a couple of years since, at least a couple of seasons since McLaren have had a a real title sponsor on their car. That, you know, that sort of issue about attracting people uh, to put relatively large sums of money uh, in terms of activation and and money on the table, um, it, it it is difficult and the financial reality, Graham, of a, a series like the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship in 2016, as we should begin to think about it now, of course, um, you know, running that amount of races over a country that large, it, it's not pocket change. No, no, it's not. I mean, look, I mean, I have a microcosm uh, of this because, you know, since uh, since DSE started, we've attempted and at times succeeded to get full season coverage with, with reporters and photographers there. I can tell you, John, that it's almost as expensive to cover you know, what is a continental series in North America as it is to cover the WEC. It's an incredibly expensive endeavour um, to, to go racing in North America. And the rewards down through the years have been very good in terms of the entertainment it's provided, the audience it's brought. But, you know, this is where transition is always difficult and always slightly edgy, is if 
you're there in a transition, if you've not quite got uh, up to speed, then you start to get people asking the questions and asking the questions quickly and hard whether or not the investment is justified. And that is the key question Mm. for IMSA moving forward is do the rewards come for the investment that people have to show? In particular, when what you're trying to do with GTLM and in particular with prototype moving forward for IMSA, where you're looking to get more manufacturer interest in those categories. That's uh, Graham Goodwin, the editor of dailysportscar.com. Nearest makes no difference uh, coming up to the hour here. So we're pretty much halfway through tonight's show. It's Series 10, Episode 39, and it's Midweek Motorsport on RadioLamont.com. Midweek Motorsport. And if you thought that hour was packed with insights and comments, wait till you hear what's next. Half gone, half still to come here on Midweek Motorsport. And in the second hour of the programme tonight, with any luck, and if technology allows us, we'll be speaking to Marshall Pruitt of Racer.com as we get his take on the Petit Le Mans. Uh, that's in the second half of the programme. Uh, keep the tweets coming at Specutainment and at Radio Le Mans and, of course, uh, on the Midweek Motorsport Listeners Collective at RadioLeMans.com. But coming up next, it'll be more of Graham Goodwin, the editor of DailySportsCar.com, as we discuss more of the week's news in the world of sports car racing. Uh, that's coming up next here on Midweek Motorsport on RadioLeMans.com. Midweek Motorsport on RadioLeMans.com. Graham Goodwin still on the line here as we move into the second hour of Midweek Motorsport. And uh, it's it's been a relatively busy week. A couple of clarifications that we've got to go back on from last week. But before that, let's take some new news. I got all confused because I was tired and emotional in Atlanta last week about where the new Corvette GT3 was being unveiled. It wasn't at the top of the hill, as I thought, uh, in the, uh, the Corvette area because, of course, it's not a Corvette racing product of which more later it was out in germany and you've uh, spoken to the guys involved and indeed uh, you've uh, had a good chance to to have a look at some of the pictures of the car and i think it's fair to say it's a beast it's purposeful isn't it it looks <laughs> it's like you know there is no i've never yet john seen a race car that looks bad in all over carbon and that's uh, it is a thing My of beauty favorite. Uh, the biggest, best surprise with that car is that car was at Ledoux and is uh, going to be homologated for 2016 competition. Uh, it went to the balance of performance test, met the performance pro- uh, parameters, and is good to go. We have ga- uh, guarantee at the moment there will be a single car entered by the Callaway competition in-house team. That, my guess, would be likely to be Addict Duty Masters, and hopefully you can catch up with the guys at some point to have that discussion. But my guess is, looking at that car looking at the spec sheets, that the phone is going to start to ring there because it's a very good-looking car indeed, as indeed the GTE version of the, the Corvette is, the Pratt Miller car. But Callaway Competition, based in Germany, uh, I think we've got another very worthy addition to an already pretty packed list of GT3 manufacturers. Uh, 600 horsepower. Uh, in uh, in this machine as as it stands, um, I mean it's clear. I mean it it has to pre bit before the BOP is applied. Obviously, I mean that, that, that's the that, this is the the health water you got to always apply to numbers in GT three. Is you know you get lighter cars, more powerful cars. When you look at something like the Serene Camaro, it produces about a gazillion horsepower. But uh, you know, but and it, it is it it's one of those things. 
it, the numbers are impressive. Uh, its operating parameters remain to be kind of uh, effective operating parameters remain to be seen. But it's a big, beefy, normally aspirated V8 in a lovely carbon shell. Um, it really is a kind of petrol head selection box, that thing. It's the 6.2 litre V8 that I had in the Corvette Stingray that I was running around at the weekend, the most um, unfortunate weekend to have a convertible. <laughs> um, uh, Six-speed paddle shift, X-Track box. It's got all the right bits in it. Have we had any idea uh, about price? in GT- I mean, it's, it's normally half a million euros, isn't it? It's, it that's about... The sort of money. It's, you, I mean, the the the, the going four hundred to five hundred grand. Yeah, it's yeah, it's somewhere between the three sixty and four hundred and fifty um, grand, grand mark. Yeah. Uh, the the uh, for, for anything other than the boutique marks, if you like. Uh, but the I think the answer for the Callaway car is it's going to come down to what do you fancy? I mean, there is a reality here, John. I'm actually doing a piece that will be up. Uh, in fact, should be up on the website today that takes a look at the the current crop of GT3 cars and two or three that we'll either see later or won't uh, you know or won't see at all. Uh, uh, namely, uh, Honda, I think, are coming. Jaguar, I think, aren't. And Lexus were trying to but couldn't. Uh, but beyond that, it's still I think it's something like fourteen or fifteen yes. different cars that you could choose to put your money down now and take your choice to to field in a GT3 race with the homologated race car next year. And that's pretty fantastic stuff. We love variety in sports car racing. It's exactly if you like, it's the counterpoint, John, to the debate we had about LMP two, where a little bit of that variety has gone away. In GT three it's actually on an upward curve again with a lot of new machinery coming. New cars from BMW, new car from Audi last year, uh, the new Mercedes-Benz. The, what at the moment seems a slightly troubled um, Porsche effort with the car mm. out-testing in public uh, this week in the hands of the other Falcon Tires team, yep. European team, but with the old engine, uh, the new direct injection unit not so far out in the development car. It's still on the bench and testing, I believe, in North America. Uh, just a, a final word on the Callaway Corvette. Callaway is very much an American company, Graham, and indeed their uh, latest street car, the Callaway Corvette for the street, with just your basic 757 horsepower, comes out of Old Lyme, Connecticut. Why was this car released in Germany, I hear you uh, utter? Because Callaway Competition is has been, uh, for some time, based in uh, Leingarten in Germany, yep. has it not? It has indeed, and in fact, it's got uh, neatly printed on the back of the car, made in Line Garden. It's a fantastic thing of Reeves Callaway, American, uh, Canadian designer Paul Deutschman, and team owners Giovanni Ciccioni, I think is Italian, it certainly sounds it, and Ernst Fleur, who is German. It really is an international effort with, with an all-American car. I, I can't wait to see it. I really can't wait to see it. Do we know how quickly they can build them, how they can get together? Now, th- there is an issue here with... Um, the US, uh, the team that's just won in um, Conti Tires, wants yep. to move up to GTD. Talking to uh, with with uh, Robin and and um, Andrew Davis, Robin Nattel, Andrew Davis. Talking to Johnny O'Connell at the weekend, he assured me that the Cadillac GT3 was homologated and did its BOP yep. uh, in two thousand and. 14s, and it was on the 2015 list. I've checked. He's absolutely right. It is. Um, so that would be, this would be a second GM product. Um, but there's 
some kind of quote-unquote gentleman's agreement or marketing agreement that means Callaway can't run this car in the States or can't sell it in the States? My recollection of that meeting we were talking about back at the beginning of last year was that one of the conditions of the Callaway competition team being allowed to build that car is they would not market it in the United States of America. There's actually three GM products, John, on the uh, the current list. There's the Cadillac, the ATS VR that you talked about, this Callaway competition Corvette C7R, and the Serini, for which we write our engineering, Camaro, is also an approved GT3 car as well. So the three possibilities mm, yes. for anybody uh, fond of GM products and, and three very different areas of, uh, of the, the current product range um, that are available there. Uh, it has to be said, though, uh, from, from, I know from your investigations and also from some work I've seen Marshall Pruitt putting in, it does at the moment look as if the Cadillac is the, is the one that looks most likely to be seen uh, in IMSA competition. Certainly, I know they're considering bringing it to the November test. Um, what's to stop Dave Miggins Racing, that well-known pie magnate from, uh, from the northeast of England, um, from going to Callaway and buying a car... Presumably, they're not going to say, well, Mr. Miggins, where are you going to run it? Uh, and it, Well, you could say, I'm going to run it at Bathurst. I'm going to run it in the 24 hours of Spa or the Nürburgring or whatever. And then what happens if he enters IMSA competition with it and decides to take two to Daytona or Sebring or whatever? I mean, it, surely they can't be sanctioned to stop him. And the way the regs stand now, Pratt & Miller or uh, Chevrolet competition they've missed the boat they can't build their own version of this now even though Doug Feehan in a somewhat unguarded moment said if somebody came along and made them a case that they, they could probably have a crack at one that that can't happen now it can't because uh, you can only have one FI homologated version of the same car. Uh, it's an interesting one. I think there's two different answers depending on whether or not someone chose to bring one of these cars to the United States and, and, and uh, campaign it in Pirelli World Challenge, where I don't think there'd be any problem whatsoever, or in IMSA, where there's that second debate about marketing uh, contributions and manufacturers' points. Now, there's a moot point, John. Uh, you would e- expect, wouldn't you, that Cadillac would have to pay an additional marketing contribution. But if someone entered a GTD car of uh, Chevrolet, who've already paid that, would they be in the same uh, – same uh, for a second class, would they be having to pay – in fact, a third, because, of course, they're in the prototype class as well uh, – as well. Would that be an easy one to slot in? It's an interesting question to get the answer from Emsa, isn't it? Would they be in a position where they're faced with the same dilemma that some of, of the smaller manufacturers, McLaren, Aston Martin, etc., are, which could prevent some of that variety, depending on how firmly uh, Emsa come down with the rule book? Well, I, th- I think, well, we saw this year, didn't we, in the current GT Daytona, that Aston Martin weren't a registered manufacturer for manufacturer. Uh, points as um, indeed dodge on I say dodge dodge weren't either so it, it it actually didn't matter how well they did their cars did it was they were only battling for the manufacturers and I believe the team's champion for the uh, drivers and the drivers team. and the teams yeah, exactly right it's not about they're not in the manufacturer points and you know it, it's it's not kind of exclusive to him so we've seen this as well in other competitions where depending on which cars uh, allegedly representing a manufacturer are registered for those points but it is one of those but, those but arcane you, parts of the of the of the picture John that probably needs to be a bit clearer but but the the question remains, assuming it's a private team who neither 
nor nor care really about the manufacturer's competition because, frankly, if you're going to Callaway, um, in fact, actually, rewind. I think Callaway are a manufacturer in their own right, as register as as recognised by the ACO. Certainly, um, in the same they certainly way, were they certainly were back in the yes, day. in the same way that Celine was um, recognised by the FIA and the ACO. Anyway, you're going to buy a Callaway Corvette from Callaway. You're not expecting to get GM to to give you any money to go and race in Europe or anywhere in the world. So whether you get manufacturer's points is not going to bother you. The the question remains, if Miggins Racing decides to take two of these from Callaway, the first two GT3Rs, as they are called, uh, C7 GT3Rs, uh, and and go and race them at Daytona, who's going to stop them? Uh, it's an interesting question, and you know, I, I think let's put it this way: from an enthusiast point of view, I'd like to see at least one of these cars in every championship in the globe. <laughs> I feel this feel the same about everything else that's out there. I love love the variety. It's always been the one factor that's drawn me to endurance GT, GT racing. I agree, and you know, and the more we can get of that difference in the engine notes between the turbo Cadillac and the the uh, the, the turbo. Uh, Nissans and uh, and McLarens, the big V8s uh, in something like the the Callaway Corvette or the Camaro, you know the flat six, which just has got that fantastic engine note for the Porsches. That's what it's all about. The screaming V10, the Aston Martin, the V10, and the the Lamborghini, and the and the the Audi. Audi. Yeah, exactly. Uh, So it's all of that. Um, You know, it 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 needs it, and I think we'd like to see more. I, I I just wonder if we might see. And um, speaking to a few people at the weekend, and the reason I'm asking this question is because there's interest in this car in the States. And I just wonder if the Corvette badge might disappear from that and it might be entered as a Callaway rather than a Corvette, as we have seen um, at Le Mans in the past. Uh, it would follow a great tradition. Anyway, fantastic looking car. If you haven't seen it, um, it is uh, the Callaway C7R Corvette. Uh, GT3R. Go and look it up on the web. It is awesome. And yes, please, we'll have the 143rd slot car as soon as possible in the carbon colours. Let's carry on in the theme uh, of uh, GTs and balance of performance, etc., etc. A couple of uh, clarifications about things that came through. We had this... frankly arbitrary rule as we were talking about last week on the show a thousand horsepower um when being boosted by hybrid in lmp1s uh i read this one way you've read it the same way as me it appears that that's you were not... co- you were correct to read it that way because that's where it was written yes but there was a reality john is they made a mistake um I did two things in the in the the wake of last week's program uh i immediately did what i can quite often do uh, when I've got, you know, a thought in my head, which is to throw down 500 words at a page telling everybody how they've done the, the job really badly. Uh, but the next thing I thought before I did that was to pick up the phone and actually speak to or try to speak to the ACO and try to speak to the FIA. Now, what I got back um, clarified two points on that uh, that pretty lengthy press release. 
Uh, it's just from the World Motorsport Council. It was indeed. I mean, number one was, you know, I tried to get the point across, and the point was, I think, acknowledged and understood that they really do need to do a better job of explaining in, in more detail uh, what are, you know, pretty important changes to the rule book. Rather than putting a sentence in, I'd like to have something in the background or access to somebody to actually have the discussion before we have to go to print about it. So the two things to actually make, uh, to clarify is, number one is, they are not restricting... Uh, the uh, the power for the cars throughout the season. It only applies to the Le Mans 24 hours. Now, I know there will be listeners that will throw their hands up in despair at this, but uh, what it basically says is that there's an upper limit of around, in, in old money, 400 horsepower for the hybrid systems at Le Mans only. That's on safety grounds because Le Mans is the only uh, track on the calendar that is not an FI grade one circuit. Le Mans is grade, grade two. Yeah. So it's uh, basically, uh, it only applies, therefore, to the cars in Le Mans trim. Uh, and that will not apply to the other eight races now okay. on, the, on the 2016 uh, FIWEC calendar. Right. So that... Right, that's not what it said, was it? That it's, no, no, no. Let's, let's, let's be clear, they got it wrong in the press release. It's as simple as that. But I do appreciate the difficulties here. You've got long and complex, uh, you know, decisions being made um, by a bit, a, in a bit of a kind of a, a rat-a-tat-tat form through the day. And if you're there and you're the poor devil that's going to issue that communique, uh, it's all too easy to miss a nuance. And in this case particularly when you're dealing with things in several languages, it is very easy to make that mistake. I'm not going to stand up here and point the finger. They made an error. Um, you know, that, that error has been corrected here, and I expect we're going to get further clarification when we get to uh, Fuji later this week, John. But that's what it applies to. It applies to Le Mans only. It comes in concert with the other changes we already knew, uh, with the reduction in the power for internal combustion engines. Uh, so they are looking... Exactly as you predicted, John, to uh, what did it say reduce, but to uh, to have the lap times going out a little, knowing as they do that the very large brains and all the um, the factory teams will be working the numbers, particularly on aero, uh, where they can grab back a surprising chunk of that time. Yeah. Uh, what they're looking to do is make a step change that that offsets that. I had a very productive conversation whilst I was at Road Atlanta about going behind the scenes uh, at the very least, at the venue where the FIA do their performance uh, balancing uh, testing, if you will, at Ledoux, which, of course, is Michelin's test track. Um, and I think we might be making some uh, some progress there that when, might When you it. said, uh, are we going to Ledoux, uh, did you say, how about you, you can come too? Because yeah. that would be good. Yeah. Um, yes. Uh, the, the So... Uh, if only to see how it's done and to understand how it's done. I, I'm with you and your comments of a couple of weeks ago and I've I've had this conversation with a few people and no one has disagreed with us yet in that it needs to be a more open uh, and transparent procedure, not in terms necessarily of everything, but at least so that those people who and there will always be them, have conspiracy theories about, yeah, yeah. ah, well, it's these people have got the advantage because they're putting the most money in. These people have got the the advantage because they shout the most. These people have got the advantage because they're the oldest name in the business. And and I don't believe it's like that. Um, but it would be nice to be able to go there and explain at least the criteria upon which some of these, and let's be honest, Graham, some of these decisions... 
that shape the championships, races and events that we all know and love. It would be nice to see the criteria and have them explained to us of how those are set out at least. Uh, yeah, and determine, let's face it, John, yes. whether or not manufacturers continue to invest in the sport. So, yeah, I entirely agree. More is better. And I think it's never a bad thing either when you actually get the people responsible for pretty complex parts of any endeavour, and in particular this as a sport, are forced into a position, and I say that with a very small f, to mm. actually explain in layman's terms exactly what happens. No, I think it's always a healthy thing when the complicated is unpicked. And uh, I agree with you entirely. I'd love to come and see it. Yeah, well, more news on that as we go through the season. On that, there's been, I think, some discussion again, as ever, on driver rankings, possibly one of the uh, most gnarly of subjects uh, in the last few years in terms of uh, of sports car racing. Uh, I'll remind any everybody that we only need to have driver rankings uh, if you have a Pro-Am Cup where one of them has to be an Am. Um, other than that, that's the way that we pay for the sport, guys. If the Ams aren't in there paying the money, you pro drivers don't have a drive for the most part. Uh, yeah, and I think, you know, what, what, we've, what we're seeing, and we've seen, again, because I've got a pretty comprehensive clarification of the changes that have been made uh, here, uh, which I don't think have appeared anywhere else so far. Uh, and it really is a matter of catching up with a few developments in the world of motorsport and, and probably closing a few doors just after a couple of horses have bolted. Uh, and basically the changes, just in brief, John, are for platinum drivers, the top of the tree, if you like, any professional driver that's finished in the top five in what's, de- the, what's termed the general classification of an FIA World Cup. Now, that includes... Um, from memory, so the various classifications in the FIWEC, right. as well as the new GT World Cup. So any professional driver that's finished in the top five, it wouldn't obviously include the lower-ranked uh, amateur drivers in, for instance, the LMP2 or GTM. And also the top five of the Formula E Championship, which was not previously listed. Right. Uh, also, uh, beyond that, uh, also added, uh, the FI have just remembered that Australia exists because uh, also any driver that's won the International V8 Supercar Championship has been added. Uh, in the gold classification, there's a bit of a clarification that I'm not going to worry uh, listeners about at the moment to do with the Atlantic Championship single-seater. Uh, that basically involved the um, until 2009 only. Uh, also, any driver that's finished in the top three general classification of... V8 supercars has been added for gold. Is Silver that, is that in a race or a championship, Graham? Championship. Right, championship standings okay. at the end of a season. Yep. Right, yes. The addition of any amateur driver that has won a major endurance race comes now as silver. So if you are um, you know, a driver that's been classified as bronze, the uh, the uh, if you've won a major endurance race with a team of top pros alongside you, you're going to be a silver immediately. Then, applying to all the categories, any driver that's been downgraded in the three-year period before his 50th, 55th or 60th birthday, mm-hmm. because that is something where we know that several drivers have actually seen that opportunity, they will not be downgraded again. So if there's been a downgrading in the lead up to that birthday, they will not be downgraded again. There's not going to be any fast track to two to steps down the ladder. And finally, yep. and this one's quite an important one, is a clarification to specify that any driver aged over 30 years old who's been out of racing for at least five years, no more than one race per year, can return to racing one grade lower 
than the grade indicated by the career record, but that can be reviewed after a single year. So that's again looking at some of those um, those uh, back doors that we've seen a couple of teams take advantage of, uh, getting pretty well um, you know qualified drivers in as a lower ranking because they've been out of racing for whatever reason. Um, you know, for several years, and coming in and and doing the doing the the, the business there. It, what it means, John, is they won't get away with that for more than a year. The, the there's a couple of. I mean, this is a program on itself. The only thing that I would say about that that I disagree with. I the, the more detail there is in that about where you finished in a championship, um, de, uh, defining what colour driver you are, I think is better. I, I do think that. And when people say it's completely arbitrary, I say it's not completely arbitrary. The rules are there. Where I There's two things about that is everybody's got to stick by that. And by everybody, I mean everybody. So SRO can't go off and do, should not be allowed to go off and do their own rankings. IMSA shouldn't be going off and doing their own rankings. Now, I accept that IMSA aren't affiliated through the FIA, but what we... What causes the issue is inconsistencies. Correct. The other thing that I... That's that's one side of it. Um, if there's a set of rules, and you know the set of rules, then there will be people who fall on the cusp of one or the other who will feel they're being either well done... Some people will, will feel they're being well done by. Some people will feel that in the, the, themselves they're being badly done by. That's always going to happen because if you said, how many races is it? If it's 100 and you've done 99 and that makes you a silver driver rather than a gold driver, then the, 99th, the, the 100th race is going to be the one that you don't take at the end of the season. I accept that. But so long as there's criteria laid down, fine. But they must be applied across a decent set of, of championships. The other thing that I disagree with vehemently on that is that a bronze driver would get upgraded on the on the basis of what his teammates have achieved with him in the car. And that would mean um, Bill Swiegler, for example, who won the championship yesterday with Townsend Bell doing one lap behind a safety car, potentially getting upgraded. And I don't think that's right. Uh, I think if you're a bronze driver because of your age or your experience and you happen to be able to afford a couple of good drivers and pay for them and have them in your car, either a silver and a gold or a gold and a platinum or however it works, then that doesn't change how good you are. It's got to be your individual performance that is taken into account. Now, how you do that in a in a sport like we have where it's the team that counts, I haven't got an answer for that right now. I'll put my hands up straight away. But I think it's unfair to grade... For example, if I drop the lottery at the weekend and I decide that Nick Tandy and I are doing Le Mans next year and we win Le Mans in GTE Am, does that immediately make me a gold driver? Absolutely it no, doesn't. No, 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 silver. Silver, John. Silver. silver. Right. It would be silver. So I guess you're right. But, uh, even, but, but then if you're two. a silver, then if yep. you're a silver and you win a championship in, in, with Nick Tandy, does that then make you automatically a gold? 
It does if you're – well, there's some of them that, that, that define you as a professional driver or not. There's a separate process for that. I think and generally there's the problem when you start yeah, trying to define professional you know, We've had this conversation, haven't we, over several beers at ver- in various airport lounges. But, uh, <laughs> but actually, it does require people to be ruthlessly honest and that, that to be a sensible kind of process of, in, uh, of ensuring that honesty. And I think the, the, the issue there is there really should only be two questions that count. Do you earn your living through motorsport as a driver – do you intend to earn your living through motorsport as a driver? And, you know, I think that they really are the two pertinent questions in terms of the basis of it. The problem is, is there's more than a cottage industry in finding ways around it. And you're always, as a governing body, going to be trying to chase the people looking for holes in your arguments oh, no, and, your, absolutely. and your regulations. Uh, 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 somebody actually had me as a, as an example in their argument the other day because they said... What, for the, a wooden driver? Yeah, a solder. <laughs> I, I was described as, and I passed that up. Um, somebody said, though... Define making your living in motorsport. Um, Hindoff makes his living in motorsport. Yes, I do, but I'm not a driver. Okay, that's fine. Um, a lot of people will talk about Formula One drivers and how many are pros and how many are pay drivers. And quite often they'll say, well, you're kind of a pro driver if you don't have to bring money to the team. I've never taken money to a team ever to do motor racing. So where does that make me? And, and somebody put this argument forward about how difficult it is to be able to draw up a set of regulations that you can say is black and white for everybody. And clearly that is always going to be an issue. I'll come back to saying what I said in the first place is we only need to define this so long as there's pro-arm categories. If you get rid of pro-arm categories, it doesn't matter. No, it, it, it doesn't. And I think that the key is if you see the value in having them there. And, and you know, I keep coming back. I always come back to actually, you know, you have those defining conversations um, in you know any kind of career in motorsport, for me there've been several. One of them happened in the wind tunnel at Lola, which uh, got me to understand the way the engineers think, which is a scary place to be. And uh, the other the other one was a conversation in the pits at uh, the, the paddock rather at Bahrain a couple of years ago with David Heimer Hansen, and we talked about pro and he said the the, the the difference the difference now from any other period in motorsport is that for commercial reasons and for reasons of actually adding you know, depth to the grids is you've made a promise to amateur drivers, which is you can win. Once you've made that promise, you've got to find some way of delivering on it. Yes, now, I, would, I would say here right now that in terms of most of the racing that I've been covering in the time that I've been writing about motorsport, the last decade and a half or so, is that the addition of those pro-am, uh, the, those pro-am classes has been a definite plus in very many ways it's got more cars there it's got more teams there it's got more professional drivers being paid to ply their trade and we don't generally john see a downside in terms of the level of competition mm-hmm. uh, but it does give the sport problems i think the the key to it is just how good are they at unpicking that yeah and I, I, it's a knotty problem and there's always going to be as i keep saying people that are on the cusp that will say you know will be pointed at for being either extremely lucky or extremely unlucky. Uh, speaking of unlucky, at the weekend, Lawrence Vantour had a very nasty Ouch. accident with the WRT Audi out uh, in uh, Nürburgring. Misano. Uh, Misano, uh, Misano, excuse Misano. me. It's Misano. Yeah, this was the qualifying race on Saturday night in darkness, and uh, Lawrence had, uh, had, a, they'd had a poor qualifying for that race. He was making his way through the pack, came across uh, one of the HTP uh, Bentleys and I have to say from my 
angle, the bigger mistake was made by Laurence Venture rather than the Bentley driver. Uh, cut long story short, up the inside, uh, either one or both cars moved in on each other, and uh, the Audi flung to the right into the Armco very heavily, heavily enough for the engine to part a company with a chassis. Amazingly scary photograph. Absolutely. Driver's side impact and fractured leg and two fractures to the hip for Paul Lawrence Vanter. Now, what that's definitely going to mean is he misses the final uh, Blancpain sprint race of the season in Zandvoort. And what that almost certainly means is he looks certain to lose the Blancpain sprint title. And if uh, WRT do uh, either get a spare car or a miracle of miracles manage to rebuild that one, uh, if Robert Fryens uh, does go out with another um, co-driver, it means he'll miss out on the overall Blancpain mm. GT title as well. And that's a damn shame. Yes. Uh, so, you know, you want to see quality guys out in quality cars. Lawrence Vanter is certainly one of those. Great. And it's very sad to see anybody hurt in a motor race, but in particular when they're a worthy championship contender. So very sad news indeed. One thing I will say about that is... Um, with the concerns over racing cars built from monocoque uh, street cars, uh, the ferocity of the accident... It was massive, John. ...proves yeah. to me that the FIA and those surrounding our sport who legislate on the safety cells within those monocoque build cars. Remember, these cars don't go, go through a crash test as a race car. They are eligible by their crash test for street cars. Uh, I am very, very impressed at how that Audi stood up to the incident. Yes, the engine came out. It's it's meant to do that. It's meant to dissipate the energy. And the fact that Laurent is able to send a tweet about his injuries. Got it, he got out of the car under his own steam. Um, you know, He was limping very heavily, and now we know why. But he got out of the car under his own mm. steam. The door was opened, and he got out of the car. He hit that that wall incredibly hard. Mm. It was there was not a lot of distance between the. It was a bit like a pit manoeuvre, uh, you know, the a bit like the you know, the police tags the back of a kind of a a, a runaway car. Uh, there was not a lot of distance, and there was an awful lot of speed between that initial impact and the barrier. And uh, on wet grass, it was all over very, oh, very yes. quickly. Yeah. Uh, so we wish Laurent Vantor the uh, the very best. He's at Vantor Lawrence, by the way, uh, if you'd like to send him your best. He tweeted earlier on today, and I saw Graham had retweeted this, I'm out, fracturing my leg, double fracture in my head. Extremely hard to accept. I might lose two possible titles. All the best, Laurent. Um, just before I let you go, uh, the next time you and I see each other, we will be in the land of the rising sun, getting ready for Fuji this weekend, a circuit that, uh, and an event that both you and I in, in, enjoy immensely. And it is the second part of the flyaway season for the FIA World Endurance Championship. Fingers crossed for decent weather there. Toyota's home track, of course, and one of, of which uh, Anthony Davison made uh, very clear last year when he crossed the line using their tag line, um, made us both sit up and take notice because we didn't quite hear it properly uh, when he said, go fun yourself. The, um, the cars are back there this weekend in front of a no doubt madly enthusiastic crowd. Anything that we should be looking forward to uh, looking at uh, particularly, Graham? Can anybody close the gap to Porsche? Mm. Uh, I think is the question. Uh, I've said it before, John. I'll say it again. I think Porsche 
have opened up Pandora's box to LMP1 by making 8 megajoules work. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be very interesting to see that mad long straight at Fuji, whether or not that can play any kind of part whatsoever uh, in this contest. It's a very strange track, um, the Fuji International Speedway. Talk to the likes of Alan McNish and he'll tell you there's lo- lots of it that he would describe. And I think he's sort of correct when you see it at speed in a car as a bit Mickey Mouse, very technical, very tight. Uh, but then you've got that astonishing uh, final straight into that very, very tricky first turn off camber down and corkscrewing, if you like, off to the right-hand side. Um, I think it's going to be an interesting one. I genuinely cannot see anybody getting onto terms with Porsche after what we've seen in the last couple of races, but it'll be interesting to see them all try. Uh, any changes on the entry list that we need to think about? Some bits and pieces. We know Nick Heidfeld for the next couple of races. He's going to be uh, dealing with commitments for his Formula E um, you know, career to come. Uh, but he should be back for Bahrain uh, in the... So that uh, leaves so- Nick, uh, Nicholas Prost and Matthias Besch on their own in the 12 car. Alex Imperatore, Dominic Kreihammer and Daniel Apt added to the 13 car. Uh, Daniel App been there for the season, John, yeah. in the LMP2. The, there's only a slight change there, and that will be Chris Cumming, who will be aboard yes. the Sarper and Morgan, replacing uh, the uh, replacing Archie Hamilton, who's been in the car for the last couple of races. With Pierre Rag and Ollie Webb. Absolutely. A um, bit more of a reshuffle around in the GT classes. Again, Aston Martin Racing, uh, you know, playing around with their driver lineups and getting a bit of a break. They'll be pleased to see on the balance of performance side. So can they be back amongst them? Well, let's hope so, because uh, to be honest with you, it just looked wrong last time. Uh, the Porsche is way too dominant. Uh, it was, to be blunt, the dullest GTE battle we've seen in the WEC for some time with those two cars able to run for formation finish from within the first hour yeah that's that's not right very quickly it's Christopher Nygaard Marco Sorensen in the Daintree in the 95 car in pro in 97 in pro it's Darren Turner again with Johnny Adam uh, Alex McDowell Fernando Reese and Stefan Mucker put into the 99 car in Labra Competitions car uh, for the 50 in Am it's Janet Garoda and Paolo Roberti with Nikolai Silvest. That's uh, right. That's, that's, driver. That, that is a, a debut for Nikolai Silvest um, with uh, Christian Poulsen on business elsewhere. And there is another uh, debutant in the WEC. And that's Liam in the 96 car. Yeah, Absolutely. Liam Griffin. It was in the mix for last time out, but, but I believe Liam's going to be in for the next two races in the 96 car. So Liam Griffin joins that team, uh, replacing Benny Simonson, of course, that uh, that very emotional return to the WEC yes. last time. Brilliant. Matthias Lauda, uh, once again, in with the Paul Dallana and Pedro Lamy, who has just been signed uh, to as teammate or has had... Signed as his teammate in the Euro NASCAR Series One, Freddie Hunt. So Hunt and Louder together again. I thought that was not a... for the, not for the first time. We, Aye. We, we had them. Was it the is it the MSF? Am I right there? The uh, the Indian yep. based Formula Renault Series. Well they done. raced against each other last year, and we actually had them on the support bill at Bahrain last year. That's right. Well remembered. Uh, fingers crossed for the weather, as I said. And really, um, if you're going to beat Porsche. 
then you can't make mistakes like Audi did in the pits. You can't be off your game. You've got to be 100% at the sharp end of the field. I just wonder what Toyota have got at their own track. The defending world champions and defending the, the race victory last year, they looked a little better at, at times It's the circuit of the Americas, but I'm not sure they've got enough. Audi, I don't know. But um, with the difference in the likely difference in the temperatures, do they get advantage back again with the tyres where they can maybe double stint a tyre? I don't know. They're going to have to do more than just that, I'm afraid, with the leap that Porsche have taken forward. Uh, It's going to be a matter of whether or not that circuit somehow, somehow suits that package. Mm. And I just... We we, we did see it, John. The Kennel Straits, we first saw that car, Mm. you know, in low drag, uh, low downforce... Uh, form, which is what the Audis have retained, they had an advantage. Now, what we don't know is exactly what uh, what, for, what form we're going to see the Porsches run. It could be interesting. Mm. I hope so, because we want to get back to the kind of form we saw in the first two or three races of the season, which we haven't really seen since, where the Porsches have just had a massive, massive advantage, and, they, and the battling we've seen has been a fight back. Uh, I want to see some battling back at the front. Uh, I'd like to see Audi involved with Porsche. Hopefully, we can get Toyota amongst it, but I'm not confident. I think they are. I think they basically have folded this year and are concentrating on what they can bring back to the, the party in 2016. Uh, and we'll uh, bring you up to date here on RadioLamont.com. It's Alex Brundle and Bruce Jones, I believe, at the weekend for the race. Graham and I on TV, uh, WEC TV duty for. Uh, for qualifying and uh, the whole race live. Lots of people asking about the Asian Le Mans series this weekend and what coverage that is. It's my understanding that they turned down the opportunity to have the WEC TV team produce their broadcast. So at the moment, we're waiting for details and when we have them, uh, we will pass them along to you. Oh, I'm delighted to see, be able to say this, Grim. I will see you in the shadow of Mount Fuji. Uh, cannot wait. One of my favourite races of the whole year. Yeah, mate, and mine as well. Graham Goodwin uh, and the uh, the editor of DailySportsCard.com and delighted to say we can move straight on to Marshall Pruitt from Racer.com. Evening, Marshall. Good evening, Heidi. <laughs> good energy. Good energy. Um, talking to Gooders there uh, in the last hour about Petit Le Mans, you were out in the weather more than most. Uh, Give our listener just a, a snapshot, pardon the pun, of what it was like out there. Well, to start, I was an idiot who wore brand new shoes to the event and knowing forecast beforehand. So if anybody was anybody questioned my intelligence, you now have concrete proof I'm an idiot. Uh, super wet, Hindy, and I'll, you go, duh, we knew it was wet. Well, I think for most of what we heard throughout the event, uh, it came from the driver's perspective yeah track surface uh the the spray limiting their their viewing ability uh what we maybe didn't hear so much about was track side itself the uh, the earth grass mud georgia clay and all that stuff surrounding the uh, the paved circuit and that having walked around it uh, maybe not as as much as some others but having walked around down in turn one up in turn seven eight nine um and a few other spots as well boy uh, 
I've washed my shoes twice, and I, they are now permanently red uh, because it was so uh, so bad trackside. Oh, and to something you mentioned and others mentioned, this maybe, again, isn't so visual from the TV, but part of the problems we encountered, and I know part of the solution that uh, led to Bo Barfield's decision to stop the race early, is the fact that the, the track, uh, I'm sorry, the earth on either side of the circuit had run out of its ability to receive water and send it down into the earth. Uh, There were times where I'd walked through mud or whatever else and was wanting to just clear some of that off before, say, going inside or something like that a little bit later, found some grass, uh, just immediately trackside and said, okay, well, I'll just try and wipe the sides of my shoes off. And instead of it having the desired effect of, you know, some coarse uh, material to clear off the mud, I essentially just stuck my feet into big puddles because the water was so high and there was no friction. It was just everything was so slick that that didn't even work. So that's maybe the part that I don't know if everyone saw at home. And you might, if anyone who's saying, well, they, they could have kept going, it couldn't have been that bad. Oh. Even if it wasn't so much what was coming down and, and hanging in the air, the, the the sides of the track ran out of its ability to deal well, with the rain. The other thing is that the weather that I drove through to drive back to the airport straight after the event, uh, all the way down past Buford, the weather was on its way, and I guess what well, forty five minutes after we'd finished broadcasting Mission and Post Race Tech. I could barely keep the Corvette convertible because, yes, I had a convertible in the wettest month, the wettest five days ever in Georgia. Um, thank you to Ryan Smith and GM for that. I could barely keep that car in the straight and narrow with all of the traction systems turned on and everything like that. There's no way we could have gone very much longer. However, within that, first of all, the fans were brilliant. And, you know, many of them stayed to the end and were there all week. It was That was extraordinary, uh, absolutely extraordinary. And we, we talked earlier on about Nick Tandy. He is otherworldly, and I'm sure you'll have a word for him. But one or two people who may well be overlooked given the result, and it was an extraordinary result, as, as Graham and I talked about, there's reasons for it, but nevertheless, it was history being made. But in that, I think it would be remiss of us not to mention a couple of other standout performances by another couple of Brits, actually. First of all, Richard Westbrook and that early part of the race when everybody was feeling everything out. He was exceptional. I don't think I've seen him drive any better. Not at all. Uh, You look at the pole that he turned in where he was on pole by more than a second. That was ridiculous. And then you look at uh, his performance to open the race as a starting driver to not just pull away, but uh, drive in a convincing manner, and that with a highly talented Christian Fittipaldi behind him and other talented drivers behind him. But yeah, Westy, uh, I think think, uh, like many of the other Brits who grow up in rain, Definitely showed uh, in, uh, racing in the rain as well. Uh, just distinguished himself there. Unfortunately, in uh, multi-hour, multi-teammate sports car racing, it's the sum total of everybody when you look at the final result. Yes. And you can't really absolve one uh, when you look at a team's uh, struggles. But I know how heartbroken uh, the visit com team was to not win the title i can just say that uh, of the three drivers uh who drove that car on saturday we can definitely say that westy 
did more than his fair share to oh. try and deliver that championship. And I really felt for him uh, seeing uh, his teammates struggle uh, and the team in general lose out on that opportunity. But you, again, you definitely can't, uh, you know, uh, of everyone, you know that Westy gave it his all and drove brilliantly. Oh. Did he ever? And another Brit, as I mentioned, the legend that is Jamo. Johnny mm. Morlam continues. I mean, he hadn't even been in that car since, what, Sebring? And he comes back in. He very nearly takes pole position, which was an awesome fight, in fairness. Gave it his all on that, and the team were really pleased. Had a chat with the team, and the team were, like, just ecstatic about it. And then went out in the race and genuinely raced his way up to the lead. He and Tom Kimber-Smith as well had a great battle, and... You know, it as I said, the legend continues. This isn't this the guy who told me at, at the end of Le Mans 2014 he was looking to retire. Yeah, right. you go. Wait a minute. This must must have been his evil twin brother who showed up at Petit and has shown <laughs> up at plenty of others since Le Mans last year. Yeah, I, I look. I just love to see spirited drives. I know that on our end, Heidi, on the media side, we have plenty to do, whether it's you with a, a headset or me with a keyboard or others. And, you know, we talk about the race. We report about what happened. But they're, you know, in and among all this, we're professionals. But we're also privately, don't tell anyone, we're big fans. And on top of the cars being brilliant machines, most of them brilliant machines that we love, there's nothing better than whether it's in the booth or standing trackside than seeing a driver like Johnny just give it his all just pour his heart into the drive and whether it's qualifying or a triple stint um last weekend was just another reminder that uh, regardless of what his cv has no matter how many wins whatever his age is he can still deliver and uh, still thrill those who uh, know what they're watching and, and know what to look for uh, and the good news is i had a chat with uh, johnny in marion's i think uh, GT3 is the future for him and he is putting together something certainly for the 12 hours at the Gulf and possibly something for the European Le Mans series as well and he's promised he'll let us know here on Midweek Motorsport uh, when he gets something to tell us so we should have another exclusive there. Marshall Pro from Racer.com is joining us here uh, in the latter part of the programme, another packed programme uh, tonight and uh, talk of, uh, of old pros... Uh, people with uh, with experience, um, a salutary tale of of uh, of social media use at the weekend. I was funny enough. I was doing some uh, major training at the weekend um, in 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 the twenty seventh and twenty eighth hours of the days uh, at, at Road Atlanta, and the old saying of "If you say it, you own it" comes up. Um, and you can take it down, you can delete it, but you know that somebody is going to have it, screen grab it, and stick it out there. It's a bit of petulance from one or two drivers at the weekend, but uh, unfortunately, uh, one in particular took to Twitter. Yeah, so if this were a year ago, Hindy, uh, young up-and-coming talent, Cooper McNeil, son of WeatherTech founder David McNeil, uh, who I guess if... I don't know if technically when the contract ends or starts, but I guess we could say from a practical standpoint that when the checkered flag flew at Petit Le Mans Saturday night, the Tudor era ended, and we definitely moved immediately into the WeatherTech uh, era as WeatherTech is IMSA, IMSA's sports car championship primary sponsor. Uh, you had young Cooper 
expressing his displeasure over the premature end to the event uh, and I guess his feeling that they were uh, robbed in some way, shape, or form. His tweet, which I first saw on former IMSA uh, senior official Scott Elkin's Facebook page, and uh, he wasn't the only one to, oh, no. to share this, but uh, Cooper's tweet of, quote, got screwed on the finish and the championship with that decision. Thank you, IMSA. I'm not happy, period. Neither is my old man, dot, dot, dot. That tweet was uh, soon deleted. I'm sure. uh, a year A year ago, Hindy. Uh, that would have just been received as a young driver who was displeased with something that uh, potentially altered uh, his championship outcome uh, with WeatherTech on the side of their car and WeatherTech uh, becoming uh, the new title sponsor. Uh, those kinds of feelings and opinions, while still valid, we can't discredit his feelings, but we can definitely say from a uh, corporate acceptable standpoint or acceptance standpoint, the son of the man who is the primary sponsor of the series probably shouldn't be venting such <laughs> things on social media. So no, it it's it's the way of the youth nowadays. Ill-advised, I think, would would be uh, the the kindest thing I can say about. I was saying to somebody at the weekend, in fairness, when discussing. Um, using social media, how pleased I was, because we've all done silly things, we've all made our mouth go, me more than most, frankly, and and sometimes in a more public arena than most. But thank goodness I did my petulance and my growing up in an era when not everyone had a cell phone with a camera pointed at me and not everything was on Twitter uh, and Facebook and Instagram. Um, I I think a a salutary tale, as I said, but a a lesson learned, let's hope there, from young Mr McNeil. And that was my take as well. Is he's a good kid, smart Absolutely kid, funny right. kid. Uh, I, you know, I've always had time for him and liked him just because he's a good character, smart kid, going to college, trying to do a lot. You know, on top of racing cars as well. You can't fault him for no, uh, trying to get the most out of opportunities in life. And this, to me, is something where, uh, given a a poor outcome or an officiating something at uh, Daytona in January uh, that goes their way, I have a fairly strong feeling a, a similar tweets will not ah, be posted. No. So, as you said, great learning opportunity. Yeah, read it in a Cartman voice from uh, from South Park. It's, it's <laughs> much more funny when you do it that, when you do it that way. Um, Overall, though, we you know we had a lot of racing at the weekend that the naysayers said wouldn't happen. Uh, it was never going to happen. It was going to be put back to Sunday or Monday or a week next Thursday. That didn't happen. And looking back on the season, you and I and Graham and me and Jeremy in the booth and everybody else have been talking about action, action, action on the track, whether it's been Chid United Sports Car Championship, Continental Tire Sports Car Challenge, the stuff behind the scenes, I would say that's a result for the second year. After a first year, this time last year, we couldn't have said the same thing, MP. No, and, and you know, I, I will absolutely raise my hand and, and uh, happily say that I was probably one of the loudest critics of IMSA's debut season with the Tudor Championship, not because I love saying negative things, but because they needed to be said. And I, granted, things did improve quite a bit by the end of the season. I look back at this year and say, wow, maybe other than some folks barking about the premature end to Petit Le Mans, which 
I don't have an issue with. No. Uh, but other than some folks barking about that, you had the natural BOP barking. Oh, uh, that hap- that will happen. I yeah, I have to admit, just as a bit of an aside, I loved listening to one uh, non P two non-Ford DP team owner in the P2 ranks, I'm sorry, in the prototype ranks after Coda just MFing the series left and right for the <laughs> balance of performance changes that allowed Ford to dominate at Coda. And I'm sitting there going, uh, they've won two races this year. Your mark and your car has won kind of everything else, yet the series is evil and got everything wrong. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. But, you know, that's going to happen. Uh, listen, if everybody's complaining about BOP relatively equally, then the guys are doing that job right. And, yeah. you know, that you're always going to get a bit of a, a bit of whining about that I, I, I let's you can just, tune that out can't you yeah 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 no 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 and I'm just saying that as a bit of a, a hopefully a bit of a funny aside but 2015 IMSA for me and as you noted Heidi we'll talk about all this in depth in a, a season review with Graham uh, 2015 IMSA in a very short assessment was about the racing hmm. it started off in grand style at the Rolex 24 some fantastic victories there Sebring Sebastian Bourdais drive oh. in thousand million degree weather uh and some mechanical difficulties as mm-hmm. well how could you forget that the bmw is coming through at long beach yeah and on and on. i mean you just start working down every event to me had some sort of standout performance porsches going on their incredible string the uh the visit florida 90 team uh daytona prototype team leading the championship for quite some way trg aston uh, amr all, despite never winning they went through a driver change mid-season with yeah. james davison being replaced by kuno and the team got stronger christina leading by one point coming the finale i mean this is all the stuff we'll talk about in the season review Heine. any any uh, one you- any one or two of those storylines would be enough to have made a great season and the fact that in every single category all right, PC was pretty much cut and dried uh, in terms of the overall, but in the Endurance Cup it wasn't. But pretty much in every single category, we went to Petite with a storyline that we could run through. And every at every part of the year, there was something we could talk about. And, and I just I think that's a massive move forward. Is it perfect? It's not. It, abso- it absolutely isn't. And certainly, uh, plus points for me. Uh, the guys who've put the, the website and the app together have done brilliant, as I mentioned to Graham earlier on. Um, you and I, and I think everybody else, know there's still work to do on the TV side. I would say, possibly controversially, is it time to step away from TV altogether and have a fully streaming product? Uh, you know, some of the guys at IMSA in the previous iteration were brave enough to try that before. Perhaps it was too early. But I think a, a solid, solid second season for IMSA 2.0. And as, and as far as looking forward to 2016, already some people, um, I suppose, announcing their plans. Corvette, for example. Interesting this for me. Corvette at the weekend. Now, is this a line in the sand? Is, is this a flag that they've put up on their four drivers? The four full-season drivers confirmed with a bit of a tarantarah at the weekend. What's the, what do you see behind that, Marshall? Yeah, and this is the team that uh, at Le Mans said, hey, we welcome uh, welcome our in-state rivals uh, next year. We look forward to beating them. And I would say with that kind of self-confidence, and uh, I don't want to say braggadocio because they back up. Mm. I've never seen the guys at Corvette Racing fail to back up, uh, frankly, anything. Uh, their press release this past uh, weekend, uh, 
confirming their four uh, Corvette Racing resigns full season drivers for 2016. Uh, it, it wasn't a mistake. There was no need for them to send that up prior to Petit Le Mans. Uh, but I would say that with the same speculation you and I have heard, some of it well-founded, some yeah. of it not, about, uh, again, uh, Corvette Racing's in-state rival. Uh, doing a bit just of say Ford. We could say Ford. Oh, okay. Well, I, I was... I was thinking DeSoto, but um, <laughs> with them doing, you know, having a driving uh, driving team to assemble, uh, they've certainly been shopping, window shopping maybe. And uh, we know that uh, some folks, uh, the Corvette Racing team, have uh, at least been on the receiving end from some inquiries. I would say that, that they made a very intentional choice to clarify that their full time, their full season drivers have been retained for next year. Uh, to end a bit of that speculation, good on them. Again, it's their narrative. What Ford does, pff, has nothing to do with Corvette. So if they're getting dragged into some of the speculation, it's the same. I would advise the same exact thing. You control your team, your narrative. Yeah. Put out that press release that says, this is who we got, this is who we're riding with, period. But you also say, well, that's an artfully crafted headline, isn't it? Corvette Racing resigns season drivers well so that means there's also a part-time driver or two oh yes uh, and they weren't included in that so hmm is that maybe uh would inquiring minds say so does that mean uh one or more of the endurance drivers could be headed elsewhere uh well hindy you know uh, let's just say that this, uh, like every press release from manufacturer, goes through many layers of approval oh, and sure. revision. Yeah. Uh, you might assume that this headline was written in a way to clarify one thing and maybe leave the other thing unexplained. <laughs> Very good, MP. Thanks, mate. It's been a great season. We'll, uh, I'm sure, hook up uh, at some stage soon. And thank you for all your... Uh, all your help uh, and your sage advice uh, down through the season. The, the listeners have appreciated as well. Marshall Pruitt from Racer.com. And that's all we have time for tonight. It's a busy weekend with the International Endurance Series, the FA National Endurance Series from Creventic at Bruno at the weekend uh, with the full team on site there in sound and vision. We've got WEC Race uh, with our... Uh, usual in-depth analysis and discussion uh, from the guys on race day. Early hours of Sunday morning in the UK. And Graham and I are on telly duty as well for Fuji with qualifying uh, and the race live. It's another busy one here at Radio Le Mans.com. Thanks to Graham Goodman and to Nick Damon. I'm John Hindoff. The responsible adult was Eve Hewitt. And there's no time to explain because the llama, frankly, is massively jet-lagged. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLamont.com.